stay true to the science. And that was a source of my own happiness because I've always found that when when all the other stuff comes boiling down to a point, you know, if you have problems with people or problems with politics or problems with money, whatever, that when you just discard all that off your mind and you get back to the basics of what you're doing, the science of what you're doing, it always brings the most fundamental happiness. The Born Global Coffee Pod series is powered by Advance, the professional network for overseas Australians, fueling change at home and around the world. When Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced Series, I'm going to introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global, with the courage to become the change the world needs. Get excited, everyone, because today we are heading to space. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Abigail Allwood, the winner of the Advanced Technology and Science category, and she is at the cutting edge of space exploration. She is one of only seven principal investigators developing innovative instruments to accompany the Mars 2020 rover expedition. Not only is she the first Australian, but earlier in her career, Abigail was responsible for groundbreaking work, proving the existence of life right in Australia, for that matter, in the Pilbara region, dating back 3.5 billion years, which was completely groundbreaking in the scientific community at the time. I'm really excited to talk more about her work and to get an insight into this brilliant scientific mind. Here's Abigail. All right, Abigail Allwood, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to chat. I'm interested with everything that you're involved you're with, also the interesting year that's been. What's top of mind for you right now as we start this conversation? We're landing in about 18 days' time on Mars, so that's top of the line for me. 18 days, that's huge. What does 18 days from landing on Mars mean? What does that look like? It looks like we're all exhausted because we've been doing so much operational readiness testing, that kind of thing. It's been a huge, huge uh, effort on everyone's part to try and get ready to operate on Mars, which sounds relatively straightforward, but it's, uh, it's actually quite complicated with the, with the dis- sorts of decisions that have to be made and the types of instruments that are operating. It's going to be extremely complex. Well, I was going to say, can you give people a sense of what will actually be happening once you get there? Because I feel like, you know, people, people talk about space exploration, we're aware there are missions going to Mars, but there's probably, well, certainly from my perspective, not much of an understanding of, yes, but what happens when you get there? <laughs> what does that part of the equation look like? Initially, it's a lot of checking out, so checking out the systems are all working, and uh, this time there's also the added complication and interest of a, of a little helicopter that's going to be um, a technology demonstration rather than a scientific sort of aid, but to test out the, the, uh, the technology of flying through the atmosphere on, on a on, on first time we've ever, we'll, we will have ever flown in the atmosphere of another planet. Wow, and that's sensational. That's, that's going to have yeah, huge implications for future missions, I hope, um, if all goes well. And, uh, and then beyond that, so the first 90 day or 90 souls, which is a Martian day, uh, will be operating on Mars time, which is 40 minutes longer than Earth day, 24 hours and 40 minutes. So each huh. day we sort of march for a little bit longer time. And everyone gets extremely jet lagged. <laughs> and um, that's for 90 souls. And then we go to seven days a week, but normal Earth hours. And that's when the science starts. Because we scientists are not so hardcore as the engineers. <laughs> And tell me, what are you hoping to learn from this particular mission? Uh, to learn whether, well, number one question is, and this is the first time there's really been a mission 
as specifically given the objective to do this is to search for evidence of past life on Mars. So that's the number one thing. And so we're going to a landing site called Jezero Crater, which we think would have been habitable uh, and I think inhabited by any microbes or microbial ecosystems if they had existed on Mars at that time. I think it would have been a very choice place for it to have lived for them to have lived at that uh, particular location. And we hopefully would find evidence of that if, um, if it exists there. I think we're capable of finding evidence if, it does, if that evidence does exist at that location. Wow, that's huge. And, and it's amazing. I mean, your research prior to this just demonstrated there was life on our planet at least 3.5 billion years ago with the discovery in the Pilbara. What's it like that moment NASA call and say, hey, can you come repeat that in Mars? <laughs> I wasn't quite like that. <laughs> it was uh, it's more a case of me coming over and saying, hey, I'd like to do this on Mars. Will anyone give me a job? <laughs> and then finding my own funding for that job. Yeah, I mean, it's been a slow turnaround. It's def- my story is not, definitely not one of you know, immediate success and being, you know, leap from one top position to another. It's just been sort of keep following what I love doing it every step of the way and then uh, sort of end up where I am just through sheer bloody-mindedness probably. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, if you had to chart that success story, um, what would you put it down to? What were the, the key traits or decisions that really have shaped your career into what it's been? Uh, doing what I love, loving what I do. Paying attention to the science, number one, absolutely number one, is following the science. No matter what else was happening, it was always follow what I, my head told me the science was telling me to do. So it didn't matter. The decisions I made in my career were you know, based on what I thought made scientific sense. You know, this, this is something that seems important to me right now. Or if it wasn't like I came to JPL with this idea of I wanted to be a principal investigator on a Mars mission, I just happened to come at a time when... Uh, the Mars Exploration Program at NASA was uh, was actually coming to the point where it was actually looking for, it was sort of ripe for that for that job, ready and sort of had the technology and the level of scientific understanding of Mars and the solar system uh, and the technological readiness in terms of landing systems and so forth and sample uh, sampling systems to be able to actually address that kind of question now on Mars. So, but, well, okay, here I am quite... You've done just done what you guys want to do on, on on Earth, which is find evidence of the great ancient microbial ecosystems that, that could have existed on Mars. So we found them on Earth, and uh, so it was just a natural fit. And so, can you talk to us about that discovery that you made in the Pilbara? I mean, that's a hugely significant uh, discovery. How how long does something like that take? How strong a hypothesis have you got that you're going to find something? How does the science? lead you there can you talk us a little bit through that that process and just how big a breakthrough it was yeah number one i think it's multiple working hypotheses so it's going in without a preconceived notion without of, of what i thought was there which was really really tough when you come into something where a field where the question is was there life or not and it's like yes or no yes is a great answer but you don't want to get married to that one answer that one yeah. hypothesis yeah. otherwise be but you'll it will introduce bias in your work or the no answer is like pretty un- uninteresting. <laughs> but I had to be had to be able to accept that no answer. But I think in either I think I realized in either case it was a case of not going not ended up just sort of ignoring the stromatolites or the what ended up being these things called the stromatolites, which were the biosignature or the, the evidence of life. Everyone had descended upon this really famous locality and, and started researching these structures and trying to work out whether they're biological. And there's a lot of evidence for yes, a lot of evidence for no, and it seemed like Everyone was just focusing on the structures themselves. And I just thought I stepped back from the weeds a little bit and sort of tried to get a, a take a breath and take a larger view 
just decided to sort of map out the paleo environment these things were forming in. And from doing that, it was like all of a sudden all of this information about the, the paleo environment and the, uh, the way that these structures were distributed amongst it within that paleo environment just sort of started falling out of the woodwork, so to speak. And that became a really kind of intricate, detailed and really, really robust framework against which the evidence for, for biology just emerged and it was not a direct, you could never have, you could never have got it directly, but if you'd gone after directly, you would never have found it. It was just sort of emerged by looking at the sort of larger view of things. That was a, a very interesting, robust way to come to the answer, which actually worked quite well. But it was also a very, very, very important lesson for how to do it when you go to Mars. Oh, I believe it. And, you know, one of the things that was striking me when you were talking about having, you know, multiple hypotheses and not being kind of convinced on on one being particularly right is how challenging is it to get funding in your area of work you know coming from I guess my background being more entrepreneurial in a business landscape you know when you're pitching to funders that they want some surety of success they want the ability to say yeah we're going to back a winner here I mean is it quite challenging when you're pursuing work in the nature that you're doing and you're having to make sure that you don't have that bias in the research and really going in open seeking to let the evidence guide you is it challenging sometimes to find partners to go on the journey with you? I think at, at a PhD level, you're actually at a really sort of sort of precious and unrepeatable point in your career where you actually get kind of wrapped up in a little cotton wool and you, your supervisor hopefully has enough funding to, to get you through your project. But that's you basically depend on your supervisor to provide that funding for you, to just put you in a little cordoned off from the rest of the world. You go and do your research and, and that's, you know, you have some money to go and present your, your findings at conferences. I think that was really important for me was that my advisor had enough money to allow me to get to a couple of international conferences and, and get my work out and my findings out, heard amongst the broader community. So that was a huge, important help in getting the job in the end. And um, the, the research itself was just the cost of being out in the field, which wasn't cheap because Groceries in Port Hedland and accommodation were pretty bloody expensive at that time because of the, the mining boom. But uh, it was, um, other than that, it's just legwork. As long as your legs work, you can, you can and you, you, know, you go write your notes and so forth and take photos. And, and that's, uh, that's, there's not a lot of expense in doing that kind of thing. Not for a student I, anyway. I love that. As long as your legs work, you're fine. That's, that's <laughs> Um, well, oh, they might not. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. But in the sense of like, as long as you can do the work in some capacity was how I took that. Um, you know, yeah. there's, there's sort of, you will find a way to make it happen. Um, I yeah. wanted to ask, you know, you're the first Australian and the first woman to be a scientific lead on a Mars mission. You often hear this phrase, you can only be what you can see. But, you know, take your career as an example, you're blazing an absolutely new trail. And I hope many women, will, and we'll talk about STEM in a minute, will be inspired to follow you. But where did you draw your inspiration and role models for? How important was the ability to see female scientists and, and leaders in the field that you're in? I would say retrospectively I had more of, a, more of an answer for that, but uh, I said from a perspective of looking forward into somebody's future, if you know my future again, there is absolutely the complete absence of any goal-setting or, you know, role model following or all that kind of I didn't have this sort of, you know, ideal of what I wanted to be and where I wanted to go and sort of set my long-viewed sights on that and try and work really, really hard towards it because I think it's like if, you, if it's like the more you try and sort of set your sights and, and you must have this ideal that if it doesn't kind of work out exactly like that, that you'll be disappointed. And I think it's actually helped me a lot along the way because I don't never, ever, ever have I ever taken a decision where things have turned out like I expected them to be. 
Wow. It's always wow. ended up way different than what I expected, but it's always been really, and of course I'm happy where I am now, but there's no way I could have charted a course to where I am now. No way, no one, at all, ever. So and what that, was your true north in the way that some people use goals or have some kind of overarching, this is what I'd love or this is my, you know, I guess nowadays you hear a lot of comments around a statement of a purpose or a direction in that respect. What what helped you navigate all those different moments science. and choice points? Yeah. Science. Stay true to the science. And that that was the source of my own happiness because I've always found that when when all the other stuff comes boiling down to a point, you know, if, if you're having problems with people or problems with politics or problems with funding or whatever, that when you just discard all of that off your mind and you get back to the basics of what you're doing, the science of what you're doing, it always brings the most fundamental happiness I love that as your guiding light, that the science always brings you fundamental happiness. And you also strike me as someone who's so forensically kind of curious, endlessly curious, completely removed from your world of work. What is mm. it that fascinates you? What do you find yourself, you know, getting absolutely lost in? I think the deep, deep time aspect of geology. So I've always loved sciences of the natural world, like being able to explain the way the world works, as in the world, not just the human world, but the everything else, like, the natural world, the way it works, that's to me what the natural sciences are about. And so geology was was the, the fourth dimension of that. It's the, the time dimension. It's the history of the earth and every other rocky planet. You can you you are once you become a geologist, you're equipped to decipher that. And that is just an absolutely astounding thing. I think going to the Pilbara for me was this was just an incredible experience. I remember sometime in the first or second week I was there and um I remember walking, so the, the, the layers of sedimentary rock that are there have been tilted over time, so they're nearly vertical now. They're no longer flat lying but the way they were deposited on the bottom of the lake or ocean or whatever it was. They're not, but they're now almost vertical, almost 90 degrees to that. And I remember looking at some of these what you call paleo surfaces, which is where the rock has cleaved and separated along one of the ancient depositional surfaces. So you could see the ripple marks that were formed on the ancient beach or whatever. And so I remember lying sitting on a rock one afternoon and as the sun was setting and this the sun at the low angle just just highlighted the ripple marks that were on the surface and I sort of looked at them wow I took my shoes off my bare feet on this thing and then just closed my eyes and imagined standing on it it was just the most amazing experience like this huge gong of truth scientific truth that just came ringing from three and a half billion years ago to today that is quite remarkable. And I wanted to ask too, can you contextualise that for people? How significant a discovery was that in the context of where, I guess, existing views in the scientific community about early life were at the time? Because it was quite contested whether or not life went back that far, wasn't it? It was very much contested. I think there was a point in time during my PhD where somebody, I think Martin White, somebody called Martin Whitehouse had written a paper in Nature saying there is no evidence older than 1.9 billion years of age that is uncontested currently. Oh my God, that's shocking. It's like it's half, the, half of the geological record, more than half of the geological record of Earth is now contested as to whether it's biological. And that includes several dozen examples of, of microfossils and stromatolites. But you know, what it did was it really shook up the field of astrobiology with a view to establishing the rigor that was needed to go to Mars and do this for real. It was in a place where you, where you really don't have a clue as to whether life existed or not, whether it in a place where the claim of life existence is so far out that you really, really have to be sure, that's when you need that rigour. And so I thought it was a little bit over the top then because I was starting to get pretty convinced of the biogenicity of the stuff I was looking at. But um, 
I think it's not over, it's absolutely the kind of rigor that we needed to develop in order to go to Mars and do it there. Can I ask you, you're passionate about STEM education and, and something we talk about a lot in Australia, something we talk about right around the world, particularly often with a focus on young women and how we get more young women into science, technology, engineering and maths. Um, it doesn't really appeal like the dial's moving all that dramatically in terms of the numbers. Mm. Um, what is it, if we could wave, if you could wave your magic wand over the education system, with the goal of getting more more young women in particular into STEM, what would you change? It's hard for me to, to sort of, uh, I'm speaking so many years now after I've actually been in Australia and been part of any of that, so I'm, maybe what I'm saying is, is a bit outdated, I don't know, so I apologise if that is the case. But certainly when I was there, the feeling was for me, I mean, first of all, I did not learn the scientific method until I was in university and it was after my bachelor's degree was over, it was in my start of my honours degree that you know, actually studying research methods and that kind of thing where they really, really kind of focus on deliberately teaching the scientific method, which, you know, develop multiple working, make an observation, pose a question about what you've seen, you know, and uh, then pose multiple working hypotheses where you really go through not just here is the one hypothesis that I think sounds great and I'd like to prove that, but here are all the possible reasonable alternatives and I'm now going to not get married to any single one of them. I'm going to test them all just as rigorously as, as each other and then I'm going to find out what the truth is. And as a way of approaching not only science and, and some new problem of of the world and the natural world and the way it works, but that was a way of approaching life. That seemed to be so fundamentally right and correct that, and so inspiring as a way. I just felt suddenly empowered to understand the world around me, to apply that to whatever I needed to do to, to really, if you really need to figure something out, that was the best way to approach it. And I thought, wow, everyone needs to know this at a much earlier age than this. <laughs> so that was, to me, a disappointing thing was, A, not getting the inspiration and B, not getting the benefit of understanding that fundamental way of thinking is that uh, was a disappointment. The other thing was in high school that oh, sorry at school was I guess my inspiration to come to do science was not aided by the fact that um, you are kind of raised especially perhaps more so as a, as a woman than man but the it seemed to me that the, the the smartest kids in the grade were all being drawn into law and medicine and, and these very sort of traditionally prestigious wealth generating of business kind of end up being hedge fund managers and so forth. <laughs> These sorts of lines of business that, that I thought in the end many years later, I thought, wow, that's a really sort of unfortunate, sad thing that that really clever girl that I used to know is now doing this. I wonder whether she likes what she's doing, you know. Because uh, as, as a scientist, I thought, I remember some girls saying at school, several girls, lots and lots of them, in fact, lots of them, a huge portion of my class saying when asked what they wanted to do when they, when they grew up, a lot of people said they wanted to be able to travel. And so they'd say retrospectively what seemed now like daft things like, I want to be a travel agent. And then now I think back at all the travel I've done, which I would never, I mean, I'd never put up my hand for anyone, anyone who said, you know, who's going to be a scientist when they grow up. It wasn't me. But the amount of travelling I've done and the, the wonder of that travel, because I don't only just go to amazing places, but I go there with a purpose and a purpose that really pulls you into the fabric of that country that, that continent, that place, that location, that time in a way that you don't get as a tourist or a travel person or anything like that. I could only imagine maybe artists or something that might get drawn into it in a similar kind of way. But if you go somewhere, like I remember going to Greece, uh, Crete, and going there to look at some Mycenaean, so six, seven million-year-old uh, gypsum stromatolites back in the early 2000s. I was working at JPL as a postdoc. And going there and 
well, yeah, the, at the airport, there's all these Australian tourists and they're busting terrible Australian accents. <laughs> oh, not one of those. We, we, we made our way straight to the, uh, the geological survey then. All of a sudden, we were equipped with all this handwritten, uh, what do you call permits to go and, and see all these places that suddenly made us, wow, we can go anywhere. We could actually take artifacts if we wanted to. But, uh, you know, of course, we didn't. But um, <laughs> it was we were all of a sudden entrusted by the most, you know, one of the very significant governmental bodies of that, of, of that country. And the same when we went to Greenland to go out and be able to sample some of the rocks in remote areas uh, in a way, you, you, you couldn't have replicated that as, 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 as a non-scientist. So it really, it really was a pity to me that you would that we, you have such a misunderstanding in high school of what careers are actually like in their reality, what sort of possibilities are opened or not opened by them. I was just thinking in a, in a broader sense, you know, you, we had your uh, gorgeous little eight-year-old daughter pop her head in on our conversation and... Mm. I guess beyond kind of the, the career education and that side of things, what do you hope to impart on her in terms of a key bit of advice or a fundamental truth lesson that you hope she'll carry with her throughout her life? I hope to help her think like a scientist, and I know she already is thinking like a scientist, and I think that's fundamentally something that I didn't get, I wouldn't have had as a, as a child. But um, I actually hesitate to recommend to her to become a scientist because I think there's actually, I think in hindsight, I mean, I could easily have ended up being, you know, making pizzas in, in Sydney or something like that if I hadn't got a postdoc at JPL, which, you know, and even if I had got a postdoc, you know, the, the chance of getting a job was so slim. It's just so fortunate. I mean, everything's like all the holes in my Swiss cheese just happened to line up just perfectly in order to end up where I am. And I think anyone replicating or trying to replicate those steps now couldn't because it had to, it had to rely on the... You know, the alignment of, of so many amazing things like the timing of the mission and the, the development of this mission and, and, and the technology that was available behind the instrument that I've developed and so forth to, to get, you could not repeat so far out the chances of that being the case, you couldn't repeat it. And I, and I, so I think if you tried to repeat that, you, you could just as easily end up being flipping burgers somewhere. It's interesting you say that because when I hear you talk about your your project mission, I go, oh wow, it must be this this birth of a whole new um, just frontier of scientific exploration, and how fantastic there are going to be all these new jobs and opportunities and different ways of scientists um, being able to um, make a well funded, I hope, contribution um, to uncovering more about the the planet and the world in which we live. That's yeah. obviously by what you've just said, they're not not the case. I mean, is it a huge challenge that uh, we don't have enough scientific opportunities out there? I should sorry, I should put the caveat in. I'm thinking particularly when coming from Australia that uh, the opportunities there are so limited. Um, okay, was that why? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think once I once I decided I was I was not working for the oil industry and I was going to do a PhD. I think that was a point where I realised I have to go work in the US. There's no way I'm going to get a job here in Australia as an astrobiologist. What? <laughs> you know who? <laughs> yeah. so, so that was a commitment then to come to another country. Gotcha. Yeah, and it is a consistent theme we've heard with some of the advance award winners that the pursuing the height of their particular endeavour required them to head abroad. Absolutely, and uh, I think. Yeah, and it, it's a pity because it, it also undermines the inspiration fact, the aspect of it too, because to inspire their kids from a young age or from a high school age to go into those kind of degrees. I mean, if they think there's no career in Australia for a person with that degree, you know, they have to be some kind of strange person to, to do that degree, frankly. You know, so without the, re the real possible 
opportunities in Australia, even if they're remote. Without those opportunities in Australia, it's 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 a leap to go. Yeah, I'm happy to go and live in a different country where you know you might not like the politics, <laughs> or you know, especially now with with COVID and so forth, it's going to, have to be. Well, it's fascinating too, you know, hearing you talk about making a scientific discovery in the Pilbara, in our own backyard, um, and yet the essential nature of having to be overseas to be able to do that work. Like those those two things almost feel like they shouldn't coexist. Surely that great research in our own backyard should be Australian-led, funded, or at least have a strong involvement where it's creating opportunities for Australian scientists uh, here in the country, but that's evidently not the case. Yeah, well, as if that's true. And um, I think, as I said, the PhD was, was one of those rare sort of periods of life where you have a, as far as you could go in Australia because you don't, you don't get too much close scrutiny as a PhD student from the government saying, what's the economic application of what you're doing? You know? <laughs> so you can, you, you can kind of indulge the, the, uh, the, the fanciful, the astrobiology and that kind of thing at a PhD level. But beyond that, when you're trying to get paid by somebody, that's much, much tougher. And that's, yeah, the US is willing to pay people to do astrobiology and uh, some countries in Europe are to some degree. But I must say, even out, outside of NASA, that there are not, so, it's either teaching or, um, yeah, well, in fact, there's teaching or fundamental research. The So in Australia, I guess you could teach astrobiology if there were any astrobiology classes to be taught. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's uh, definitely a ticket to go overseas for sure. It's a more promising ticket is to go overseas. I'm extremely grateful to you for making the time within the month leading up to the Mars mission. Um, and I won't impose on any more of it. I just have one final question. Um, we've talked about a lot today. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about with the podcast is turning ideas into action and, and trying to get people who are inspired by what they've heard you share, you know, about the universe, about the earth, about the potential of science, about the way you've navigated your own career to go out and take action for themselves. So if you could leave people with an encouragement, what action would you like to encourage our listeners to start doing today in order to be a better leader or to have greater impact in, in their careers and lives? To think about the choices that you make in life, you know, the choices regarding you know, what sort of directions you think you might want to take, to think about them from a, a perspective where you block everyone else and everything else out of your mind and you try and think about what you fundamentally love and what you would enjoy doing and what you would get personal reward out of doing when it, when it all boils down just to that, to really try and think about what truthfully motivates you and then you'll be much more likely, I think, to succeed at what you want to do. I love that. It reminds me of this quote, you know, uh, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people who've come alive. Um, that yeah. whole notion of you know finding your source of burning passion, like just like you have. Yes, Abigail, I can't thank you enough for everything you've shared today. It is such an inc incredible inspiration to not just be talking to the, the first Australian, but the first woman to lead a scientific mission on Mars. Uh, I can't wait to follow this very closely and see how it goes. Uh, and congratulations on the incredible trailblazing career you've led to date. I have a feeling you're just warming up, which is. <laughs> remarkable in itself so uh, certainly I, I will be following your career with great interest and I'm incredibly grateful for the time you've spent with us today and the insights that you shared it's been it's been fascinating learning more about your world of work thank you very much it's been a pleasure I'm grateful to be on your show thanks for listening I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world I'd love to hear about the impact you're having 
So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon. Mm -hmm.